That passage is fitting not only because it's quoted, or a portion of it is quoted in our passage this morning, Matthew 27, as we continue in our study of Jesus at the latter end of his earthly ministry. But not only because it's quoted, but also because, of course, it speaks directly about Jesus and what he was coming to accomplish by coming to earth. There was a video I saw a few years ago that was quite interesting. It was set in the land of Israel, and it was a Christian individual uh, who was a Jewish convert himself to Christianity, and he was simply going around in Jerusalem primarily and interviewing different Jewish individuals, and he would stop them for a moment and ask them if he could read um, a small portion of the Bible to them. Actually, I think he didn't tell them it was the Bible, first of all. And so they said, yeah, go ahead, and he read Isaiah 53, and then he just simply asked them, do you... Do you have any idea who that could be talking about in human history? And all of them said Jesus. It's, it's obvious. It's talking about Jesus. And then he would respond, do you realize that's in your scriptures, the Old Testament? And what was truly sad was the vast majority of these Jewish individuals, many of them not necessarily um, practicing Jews in the religious sense, many of them had no idea that that passage was in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. And yet they clearly understood when they just read it or had it read to them, that it was speaking about Jesus. He's the only one that this really fits in all human history. And our passage is going to bring this out for us. I've entitled this message, The Oldest Prophecy Fulfilled. And we'll see why that is in the passage. But we've seen through the ministry of Jesus, and now through his dying on the cross, Jesus is going to fulfill the oldest prophecy in human history. By crushing the head of the serpent, Satan, his enemy, he will provide an atonement or a remedy for sin-sick mankind. And we'll see this through two means. First of all, we'll see that Matthew helps prove to us or, or takes time to prove to us that Jesus is a king like no other. And then he'll go on and show us that his purpose as king was like no other through his crucifixion. So first of all, we see the proving of Jesus, that he's a king like no other in verses 27 to 31. You can turn to Matthew 27 and follow along, beginning in verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, most likely a, a tattered old scarlet robe um, that was in the waste paper bin, so to speak, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, showing authority and kingliness, and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. And after they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes back on him. And then they led him away to crucify him. What happens in this passage is clearly a mockery, and yet it tells us something for those who have what we might call the eyes of faith, the eyes of Scripture, we see that it tells us much more than merely some Roman soldiers mocking a man who is about to die. We see it tells us something about who Jesus actually was. Yes, they put this royal robe, which was probably tattered and worn, on him, and they're mocking him. They give him a crown, albeit a crown of thorns, but that's actually perhaps the strongest symbol to, to make us think something more is going on here. If we know our Old Testament, and especially the first few chapters of the Bible, we realize something important is happening here. 
This is a link to the greatest and oldest of prophecies. In Genesis chapter 3, we're given a prophecy that Jesus, this one who is to come, he's not named, but this one who is to come in the family line of Adam and Eve, he will one day come and he will crush the head of the serpent, Satan, who helped humanity fall into sin. And in the process, he will be battered and bruised. But, interestingly, part of that process is him taking on sin and its curse. You remember, part of the result of sin, as it came onto the human race and is passed on to all of us now, is that thorns and thistles will grow in the world, thereby making it more challenging for mankind to live by the, spread, the sweat of his brow, to raise up crops and food for himself. And here Jesus is given a crown of thorns. Literally, yes, but also that is figuratively hearkening back to the fact that he and what he is doing at this moment is taking on himself sin and all the results of sin, including the thorns and the thistles and the curse that is on the world and on mankind. And so we see Jesus crushing the serpent and in the process, him being bruised and battered, battered as well in order for him to be able to take the guilt and punishment of mankind on himself. But not only does Matthew show us this, he uses several proofs showing that Jesus is king, but also through this crucifixion, he shows us that Jesus' purpose is different than all other kings or monarchs. Through his crucifixion, we see his purpose is like no other as well. Look at verses 32 to 35, where we see the humiliation, yet further humiliation, of Jesus. As they were going out, that is, as the soldiers were leading Jesus out to his crucifixion, they met a man of Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes, his robe, by casting lots or gambling for it. We see several interesting elements that Matthew brings to our attention. The first is this Simon. Do you remember not too long before this? Jesus had told his disciples that all of you will run away. All of you will turn your back on me and betray me. And what did one of his disciples, Simon Peter, who is often considered one of the leaders among the twelve disciples, what was Simon Peter's response? No, no, Lord. Even if everyone else runs away, I won't. I'm going to stay true. But where is Simon Peter when Jesus is carrying his cross? Nowhere to be seen. And so as it were, there needs to be a replacement for Simon Peter. And so instead of Simon Peter who's run off and betrayed Jesus, now we have Simon, a different Simon, Simon of Cyrene. A man who was just interrupted in his daily activity by the Roman soldiers who were allowed to compel any citizen to carry the cross beam for someone who had been condemned. Which, of course, was a humiliation to the one who had to carry that. But he had to oblige. And this Peter, Simon Peter, who had pronounced his loyalty to the point of death, he's gone, but another Simon has taken his place. We also see here, Jesus is unable to carry his cross. He would have had one of the cross beams that he would have been expected to carry outside of the city from the place of judgment to the place of his crucifixion called Golgotha, the place of the skull. But he's unable to carry this cross beam. Why? Well, you remember Jesus has been up for 24 hours, more than 24 hours by this point. 
And in that 24 hours, not only is he exhausted, but also he has undergone a scourging, which itself, from a Roman perspective, can easily lead to death because of the way in which they do it. But in addition to that, he's been beaten and mocked and scorned and gone through great trials and tribulations. And so it's little wonder with all the blood loss and everything else that he's unable to carry this crossbeam all the way to his execution. Jesus' refusal of the wine also tells us something interesting here. It speaks to the voluntary nature of his death. What they would do is, once they put a person on the cross, sometimes they would get a little sponge on the end of a stick and put it to the lips of the individual. The idea was, could be a mercy, could actually be a cruelty, but the idea was, well, maybe, maybe a little wine will help dull the pain. But of course, it also helps prolong the pain. So it's both a mercy and a cruelty. But Jesus refuses the wine once he knows what it is. Why? Because as he faces death, he wants to face it fully conscious and in control of all the events. He is going to take the full weight, the full brunt, the full measure of the pain because that is what the Father has ordained for him. By the way, Golgotha, meaning the place of the skull, it's a little bit of a question why it's called that. Um, We're not sure, but likely just because that was the place where executions were unfolded. It had to be done outside the city because for something like a crucifixion and all that it entailed to happen inside the Jewish city, the holy city of Jerusalem, would have been an abomination and would have caused a riot every single time for reasons we won't go into. And so it had to take place outside the city, and this was a known place of crucifixion, a known place Um, right by one of the major roads, so that everyone who's kind of walking along that road, and especially at Passover, you would have had thousands and thousands of extra individuals in and around the city at that time. Everyone who walks by is going to see the individuals being crucified, and they're going to ask, "Why, why are they being killed? And the word can go out. This is a place of death and decay. Verses 35 and 36 also tell us something important, though. It's, a, it's important to consider something. How does Matthew describe what is happening? Look at the text, verse 35. Then they led him away to crucify him. A small phrase, one primary word, crucify. That's all he says on the matter. He gives a few more details, yes, but he doesn't go into a full-orbed explanation of all that crucifixion entailed. In essence, he does not give all the gory details. And this is keeping with the way in which all four of the Gospel writers speak of the crucifixion. And it's important for us to understand this. uh, Because oftentimes, uh, perhaps even for many well-meaning Christians or in movie depictions, etc., what is emphasized is the horrible pain and cruelty that Jesus underwent. And that's true, he did. But that's not what the Gospel writers emphasize. They actually speak very little about that. Why? Because what's far more important is for you and I to understand the reason why Jesus went through that pain. What was the purpose? What did it accomplish? Many people have gone through great pain, but what did Jesus actually accomplish? For instance, the Roman soldiers could have described to you in minute detail what a crucifixion entailed, what it did to the human body, how horrible it was, and all the horrors that it entailed, but... That didn't make them, as Roman soldiers, any closer to trusting in Jesus or having their sins forgiven or being made right with God or knowing why he was there in the first place. So too for us, although it can be instructive for Christians to understand all that Jesus underwent, we cannot do that at the exclusion of understanding the purpose for which he did it and what he actually accomplished through it. So we best not get sidetracked with that. The Gospel writers don't. The New Testament won't allow us to. 
But then we see through multiple ironies in this text, and Matthew is, remember Matthew has spent at least 20 years thinking about how he is going to write this gospel before he writes it down. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he is writing down all these details, and we've seen time after time, he doesn't just give details for the sake of it. They always have a purpose. And we see in this passage multiple ironies. For instance, in verse 36, let me read verses 36 to 44, and then we'll consider these ironies. It says this, And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed a written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The same thing the Roman soldiers had just been mocking him for. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders, they all mocked him. So they're all gathered around mocking him. He saved others, they say, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel? Then let him come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults upon him. We see many ironies here. Beginning in verse 36, notice who's watching with Jesus. It's a very particular phrase. The soldiers are watching with him. What just happened A few hours prior to this, Jesus is with his disciples. He takes Peter, James, and John closer into the garden with him. And what does he tell them? Watch and pray with me. But they don't. They fall asleep three times. And the exact same phrase is used here. The soldiers are the ones watching with him when it should have been his disciples. What an irony. Secondly, we see this title placed above his head, Jesus, the King of the Jews. What Pilate wrote there was meant to mock the Jews. All right, Jews, you kind of twisted my arm behind my back in order to get me to kill someone I knew was innocent and deliver to you this Barabbas who everyone knows is guilty. All right, I don't like how you've manipulated me. I'm going to get back at you every way I can. Here's one. Here's your king that I'm killing on a cross. And we find out later the religious leaders come to him, no, 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 don't say Jesus, King of the Jews. Say, he claimed to be Jesus, King of the Jews. And Pilate says, no, I'll keep it the way it is. This is his way of getting back at them. It's mockery, and yet it's exactly true at every point. He is the King of the Jews. That's what he claimed, and that's what he is. Thirdly, we see these common thieves on his right hand and on his left. But you remember in Matthew chapter 23, James and John, two of his disciples, come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, we want you to grant us something. In your kingdom, we want to be on your right hand and on your left hand. What they thought to be the places of authority and position and power, and those are the places of authority and position and power in every other earthly kingdom. But remember, Jesus is a king like no other, with a purpose like no other, and a kingdom like no other. And he says, you don't know what you're asking, but it will be given to those that my Father decides. Well, now, here is Jesus doing his primary kingdom work. And who's on his right hand and on his left hand? It's not the place of authority or power or majesty. It's a place of condemnation and death and cruelty. It's two common thieves, two common robbers. That's not what James and John had signed up for, and that's why they're nowhere to be seen. 
Here, too, we also see the last great temptation of Jesus in his earthly ministry. Do you remember that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and we saw this at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel, what happens as soon as he starts his earthly ministry? The Spirit takes him into the wilderness after his baptism, and he is tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And now here is the last great temptation, but it's not by Satan, in one sense. It's by the religious leaders who are taking the part of Satan, who is their true Lord and Master. They've shown that throughout the Gospel. And they give one last temptation. They are, in essence, being the mouthpieces of Satan at this moment. What is their temptation? For Jesus to reject the plan of the Father and for Him to come off the cross prematurely. Oh, and then we'll believe you, Jesus, if you'll just come off the cross. Would they have believed Jesus if He had come off the cross at that moment? Absolutely not. They hadn't believed anything he had done up to this point. How do we absolutely know that they wouldn't have believed? Because a few days after this, when Jesus rises from the dead and all of them are fully aware of it, they still won't believe in him. They still reject him. They still mock him. And then they persecute Christians who follow him. They ask him to come down from the cross prematurely. But he was actually in the very process of doing what they were mocking him for not being able to do. That is, he was in the process of saving others. He was in the process of destroying the temple of his body, and he would raise it up, or better yet, the Father would raise it up on his behalf in three days. He was in the process of doing exactly what the Father had said and what he had told his followers he would do. God would rescue him. God the Father would rescue and vindicate him. As we're told, he would not let his Holy One, Christ, see corruption. He would raise him up. So Jesus did something much greater than coming off the cross prematurely. Which, by the way, he had full authority and power to do. You remember what he had told his followers. I could at this very moment, as he's being betrayed in the garden and taken captive, he said, I could at this very moment call many legions of angels and they would fight for me. But this must be fulfilled, he said. So he was there to take the wrath of God, to die and then rise three days later. Their outlook was wrong. Their promise is a farce. They said they would have believed in him if he had come down from the cross, but of course they wouldn't have. Every true Christian, every true follower of Christ believes him to be the Son of God. Why? Because he stayed on the cross. Because he stayed doing the will of the Father. Notice too the vindictiveness of the religious leaders. Why on earth are they there? Have you ever thought about that? Why are all the religious leaders around the cross watching this cruel death Mocking him. The Sabbath was about to take place in a few hours and there were certain prescriptions that you had to do as a Jewish individual to get ready for the Sabbath. This is also the biggest week on the whole Jewish calendar. Because it's Passover week. Don't they have something to do? But they're taking as much time as possible to mock Jesus. To walk outside the city to do this. You see that their hearts are not with God at all. They claim to be followers of God. They claim to be the teachers of God's way, but they're not following God's way. This is not an act of someone who is truly following the one true God, rejecting his son. The robbers, too, attacked Jesus. That, too, is odd. Why on earth would they attack Jesus? He had done nothing to them. They're in the same boat as him, and he was actually excruciating on a cross to just get enough breath to survive for a few more seconds. So they're taking some of their last breaths. Why? To mock Jesus? For what point? But this actually brings an important application for us. 
neither the outward piety of the religious leaders, we might just say their religiosity, neither their religiosity nor the victimhood of these common criminals, the robbers, so religiosity nor the victimhood guarantees a heart obedient to God. This is an important point for us because there is an idea becoming more and more prevalent in our society today that if you are a victim, that puts you on a higher moral plane than anyone else. Now, in society, we certainly do need to want justice and fight against injustice, and we want to help true victims. We're not saying anything about that. But what we are saying here is that whether you are a perpetrator or you are a victim, from the standpoint of this earthly life, everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. No one gets a leg up before God because you are either a perpetrator or a victim. What really matters is your heart towards God. What both of these sets of individuals, if we want to say, should have done along with the Roman soldiers and everyone else is they should have fallen down and worshipped Christ. They should have joined with the Christian hymn, crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne, as he did his kingdom work. Or they should have more personally perhaps sung another Christian song. He bore my crown of thorns and died. Upon my cross they pierced his side. And it was me who should have borne the cross, the nails, and that crown of thorns. But we also see something else here. What we might call um, a pact or a set of prophecies fulfilled. We're familiar with the, the concepts newer in our day and age, new terms in our dictionary of a data dump or an information dump. Or more recently, one of the authors I really enjoy he did a YouTube video for his fans and his readers in which he surprised everyone. He's a prolific author. But he surprised everyone by giving what you might call a sort of publication dump. He said, during COVID, you know, I was at home and everything, and I wrote my other books, but I actually ended up accidentally writing five extra books, which I'm about to publish, um, just FYI. And, and all of his fans are really excited about that. What's going on in all those situations? Data dump, information dump, book dump. Here we have a prophecy dump. All at once, Matthew, who's gone to great pains and lengths, uh, writing primarily to a Jewish audience, but inviting everyone in, he's told us over and over again, here's Jesus fulfilling prophecy, and he quotes to us from the Old Testament, but now it's as if he, he can't get them out fast enough. He's using all these phrases from the Old Testament, but in this passage, he doesn't tell, them, tell us where they're coming from. He just gives them. We see the wine that Jesus has offered is a direct fulfillment of Psalm 69, verse 21. We see the fact that the only thing he owned in the world, think about this, Jesus, the Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, he owns one piece of clothing, his robe, that's it, in the entire world. And they're gambling for it at his feet, which was typical of the Roman guards. This was anything that the, the um, convicted felons, so to speak, had on their person was free game for the Roman guards to get. But Jesus, we find that his garment was woven throughout of, of one cloth. That is, it wasn't different pieces of cloth put together to make one garment, as we sometimes do. Rather, this was one continuous woven garment, which made it slightly more valuable than the other type. And so they weren't going to just rip it in half. They had to cast lots or, or gamble for it. This is a Again, a fulfillment of Psalm 22:18, And the mockery that those people are giving to him, the Roman soldiers, the religious leaders, and even some of the exact phrases they use are a fulfillment of Psalm 22, 7-8. And the fact that he's crucified with two robbers, two common criminals, is another prophecy fulfilled from Isaiah 53, verse 12. There are others, but these are some of the most obvious. 
And what this means is that once again we see the Father's plan is being worked out as Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecy. And I remind us that all four of those prophecies I just mentioned were written more than 500 years before they came about. That's inexplicable from human standpoint. But it makes perfect sense if God the Father in His sovereignty is working out His purposes. So do you see it? Do you see the theme? That through dying on the cross, Jesus is crushing the serpent. Satan thinks he's winning. But Jesus is actually crushing him, even as Christ is being bruised and battered in order to provide the atonement, the remedy for sin-sick mankind. He had a purpose like no other because he was a king and had a kingdom like no other. He's working out the Father's plan. This brings us to three conclusions. First of all, through the taunts we can learn something. Through all the taunts of the individuals toward Jesus, we see that Jesus is the King of the Jews. The Romans mocked him for it. Pilate mocks him and the Jewish people for it. The Jewish people don't like that title for him, and yet it's exactly true. He is the Messiah who had come to conquer, but before he conquers all and sets up his full kingdom, as he has said he will do one day, he will first conquer the real problem, which is sin, by becoming sin for us, the atoning sacrifice and being our substitute for our sin. We also see that He is the Son of God, even as they mock Him and think He is not. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. We also see that He uniquely should be believed. He did something far greater than coming off the cross prematurely. He stayed on the cross. It wasn't the Romans who took His life, we find. It wasn't the Jewish people who betrayed Him. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't any single group or individual, humanly speaking. Jesus gave up His life willingly. Jesus was in control at every point. He was not the victim. The triune God was the instigator of this because it was the only way for mankind to be saved. Secondly, we see the oldest of human prophecies fulfilled. Genesis 3 verse 15 is the oldest of all human prophecies. It's called in theology the Proto-Evangelion. Proto meaning first. Evangelion is the word from which we get gospel or good news or evangelical all meaning the same thing. This is the first mention of the good news in the Word of God. Genesis 3.15. And that prophecy tells us exactly that this one who is to come, he will save his people. How will he save them? By being crushed himself and in the process crushing Satan and defeating sin. I love how one Christian song called The Judgment pictures this as Satan stands before God. It says this, Faces turn as into the courtroom comes the very seed of sin. He who was the saint's accusers must now face the charges brought against him. And with the fury of all the ages, that demon voice begins to cry. It's not fair. I almost had you. On Golgotha, I watched you die. See, Satan thought he had won. But this was always the plan of God. And this was the means by which not only would Satan be defeated, his death now would be sounded, but also it was the means by which he could ransom mankind. So what does that mean for you? What does that mean for you as a potential or an actual follower of Jesus? Well, it means one of two things, depending on where you're at and how you're coming to this. One, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would ask this. Are you trusting in Jesus today? Not at one point in your life in the past did you think you trusted in Him. I'm not asking if you believe there is a God or even if you believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God. Rather, are you trusting in Jesus today? Do you have a personal relationship with Him and has your 
sin been forgiven. Only then can you have personal assurance and only then will you see victory in your own life and will you be redeemed. Simon of Cyrene is a great example of this. Matthew 15, 21 tells us a, a little bit of a tidbit of information that Matthew doesn't give us. But it's an extremely important bit of information. What he tells us is that Simon, this one who was to carry the cross for Jesus, he says in verse 21 of Mark's Gospel, he says, he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why in the world would you mention the two children of this man? Well, because Simon became a Christian. And his children grew up in the church. And when Mark was writing that Gospel, he knew that they were still alive and that People in the various churches knew these individuals. So, as it were, as that gospel is being read out loud, as it would be in a church gathering, you could look across in the pew, so to speak, and say, hey, that's your daddy's talking about. Wow. This really happened. But what is so interesting is that Simon became a Christian. His family grew up in the church. What does that tell us? Well, consider how God the Father, through His Spirit, caused Simon's path to inter inter um, what's the word I'm looking for? Intersect. That's the word I'm looking for. Uh, intersect with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? This was an interruption to Simon's day. What was Simon going about his merry way doing? Probably getting ready for the Passover and the Sabbath and all those things and, and preparing things for his family. And yet he gets divinely interrupted. But what a wonderful interruption. An interruption of his daily life. And everyone who becomes a Christian is actually, they're in the same boat as Simon. Because at some point along their normal day-to-day -day life, they're interrupted and brought face-to-face -face with Jesus. That's a glorious interruption. I wonder, have you been interrupted in your daily life with the person of Jesus? To be quite frank, if you're listening online or joining with us in person and you never yet trusted Jesus, then uh, there's a bit of a news bulletin here. You're being interrupted right now. The fact that God the Father, through His Spirit, would send Jesus the Son to earth to accomplish everything that you need to have your sins forgiven, to be made right with God, to have a home in heaven, to live with Him forever, to have a relationship with the God who made you. The fact that He would do that for you and then purposely, perhaps through a friend, a family member joining with us online, whatever it is, through some means, tell you about it and invite you to respond. That's a divine interruption. I hope you'll take it as that and respond to it appropriately. What, after all, what more could God do for you? To do everything that's necessary at great personal cost to himself, sacrificing of his own son, and then telling you about it and commending it to you and inviting you to respond. All you have to do is accept but secondly, for a Christian, it means that following Jesus involves taking up your cross and dying to yourself each and every day. This is commended to us by Jesus and over and over again in the New Testament. It means that the rejection, mockery, and misunderstanding that Jesus underwent is exactly what we as Christians should also expect as his followers. And I know many of you have experienced that, whether through family, friends, co-workers, they don't understand why you're doing what you're doing. They don't understand the reason why your life has been changed. They don't understand why you take so much time going to church and, and those sorts of things. They may mock and ultimately reject you. But that's what you should expect. And, and we're told to even rejoice at that. Because if it was good enough for Jesus, our Master, then it's good enough for me. It means that just as Jesus had to suffer outside the city, 
you remember Exodus and Leviticus prophesied that as we saw last week, so too we are told that we must go out, outside the city to him and bear his reproach. Hebrews verse 13, or chapter 13, verses 11 to 13. So if you claim to be a Christian, in what ways are you taking up your cross and dying to yourself today? In what ways are you feeling that mockery, that misunderstanding, that rejection by others, friends, family, co-workers? If you're not experiencing that at all, and if you're really not seeking to die to yourself each day, then, then there's a major problem. Either you are religious but are not actually a Christian, or you are not properly applying the truth of the gospel to your life. We are all called to take up our cross and follow him. Now, as bad as all of this is for Jesus, next week we're going to find out that actually all this pales into comparison to the great, far greater suffering that he undergoes in the next section. Far worse is yet to come for Jesus, and yet all of it is because he is a king like no other, as we've seen proven to us over and over again, doing a kingdom work different than all other kingdoms, and he had a purpose like no other, to give the remedy for sin-sick mankind. If you have not yet responded and embraced that remedy, I hope you will today. And if you have embraced that, I hope you will die to yourself this day, which we cannot do in our own power, but only through his. Let's pray. Father, we've heard in this passage of your compassion for us by powerfully attesting to the work of Jesus, your Son, and all that he did for us. I pray that no one would go from this place without understanding and truly feeling the convicting power of your Spirit that Jesus truly was King and Lord. He willingly died, even though he was in control. He suffered in order to take our place as our substitute. All the mockery he endured, help us to understand that we are the ones who actually deserved that. All the pain he underwent, help us to understand that that is the just sentence for our sin and rebellion against a holy God who created us. And we pray that we would fall down at your feet, at the foot of the cross, and ask your forgiveness. For all those hearing this who are not yet followers of yours, who have not yet repented of their sin and turned to you and received your free gift, I pray that they would do so today. You have loved them enough to divinely interrupt their normal day-to-day life to tell them this truth, help them to embrace it. And for everyone who has embraced it, I pray that you would help us to take up our cross daily, to suffer shame and guilt and go outside the camp to bear our reproach because you suffered as well. We thank you that we too get to be misunderstood, mocked, and rejected at times for the sake of Christ who suffered far greater than we ever could in order to bring us to God. We pray all these things in the name of Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen.